Greetings, listeners. This is I, once again, D.B. Spitzer, here to talk to you about Black Clock Audio Tales. Yes, it is February, and that is the month of Jules Verne, and brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their cool new Highland cow slipper. It's all shaggy like a Muppet. It's like brown Muppet fur or a extra woolly Highland cow. Look fashionable. Look cool. Keep warm. BunnySlippers.com Hey, did you know that we're talking about Jules Verne? And did you know that you can find Black Clock Audio Tales on the Facebook and the Twitter and the Instagram? Mostly Facebook and Instagram these days. I've never been big on Twitter. And let's see what else. You can listen to Jules Verne stories this month on Black Clock Audio Tales, as I said. And also we will be talking about... Uh, the Cthulhu Mythos and Egyptology and Nephrim Ka. Maybe a little bit of Naralethhotep will sneak in there as well. Alright, thank you so much. And remember, there's going to be probably something by David Heath of Dave's Corner of the Universe and eventually Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. And also, we will be having probably some experts on the show talking about Jules Verne at some point in time in this month. And let's not forget, I don't know, the best show there is, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, which is our monthly show, last Tuesday of the month. And if you want to hear more about the Cthulhu Mythos, go through our back catalog or check out pgttcm.com or go to podbean.pgttcm.com. Find the RSS feed. Find the show notes. Find out where the store is and how to help support the show so we can have further episodes in the future. And let's not forget, you could go to paypal.me M-E, slash P-G-T-T-C-M and donate a buck or five or twenty or fifty or a million dollars and help the show grow. I mean, we're doing pretty good right now, but we could have another Beowulf month, and who wants that? Not me. All right, let's get on with the show. Let's have some Jules Verne, and let's go to that underground city. All right, here we go. The Underground City by Jules Verne. Chapter 1. Contradictory Letters. To Mr. F. R. Starr, Engineer, 30 Cannongate, Edinburgh. If Mr. James Starr will come tomorrow to the Aberfoyle Coal Mines, Dochert Pit, Yarrow Shaft, a communication of an interesting nature will be made to him. Mr. James Starr will be awaited for the whole day at the Colander Station by Harry Ford, son of the old overman Simon Ford. He is requested to keep this invitation secret. Such was the letter which James Starr received by the first poke on the 3rd of December, the letter bearing the Aberfoyle postmark, County of Stirling, Scotland. The engineer's curiosity was excited to the highest pitch. It never occurred to him to doubt whether this letter might not be a hoax. For many years he had known Simon Ford, one of the former foremen of the Aberfoyle mines, of which he, James Starr, had for twenty years been the manager, or, as he would have been termed in English coal mines, the viewer. 
James Starr was a strongly constituted man, on whom his fifty-five years weighed no more heavily than if it had been forty. He belonged to an old Edinburgh family, and was one of its most distinguished members. His labors did credit to the body of engineers who were gradually devouring the carboniferous subsoil of the United Kingdom, as much at Cardiff and Newcastle as in the southern counties of Scotland. However, it was more particularly in the depths of the mysterious mines of Aberfoyle, which border on the Aloha mines and occupy part of the county of Stirling, that the name of Star had acquired the greatest renown. There, the greater part of his existence had been passed. Besides this, James Starr belonged to the Scottish Antiquarian Society, of which he had been made president. He was also included amongst the most active members of the Royal Institution, and the Edinburgh Review frequently published clever articles signed by him. He was, in fact, one of those practical men to who is due the prosperity of England. He held a high rank in the old capital of Scotland, which, not only from a physical but also from a moral point of view, well deserves the name of the Northern Athens. We know that the English have given to their vast extent of coal mines a very significant name. They very justly call them the Black Indies, and these Indies have contributed perhaps even more than the Eastern Indies to swell the surprising wealth of the United Kingdom. At this period, the limit of time assigned by professional men for the exhaustion of coal mines was far distant, and there was no dread of scarcity. There were still extensive mines to be worked in the two Americas. The manufactories, appropriated to so many different uses, locomotives, steamers, gas works, etc., were not likely to fail for want of the mineral fuel. But the consumption had so increased during the last few years that certain beds had been exhausted, even to their smallest veins. Now deserted, these mines perforated the ground with their useless shafts and forsaken galleries. This was exactly the case of the pits of Aberfoyle. Ten years before, the last buddy had raised the last ton of coal from this colliery. The underground working stock, traction engines, trucks which run on rails along the galleries, subterranean tramways, frames to support the shaft, pipes, in short, all that constituted the machinery of a mine had been brought up from its depths. The exhausted mine was like the body of a huge, fantastically shaped mastodon, from which all the organs of life have been taken, and only the skeleton remains. Nothing was left but long wooden ladders down the yarrow shaft, the only one which gave access to the lower galleries of the Dotrick pit. Above ground, the sheds, formerly sheltering the outside works, still marked the spot where the shaft of that pit had been sunk. It being now abandoned, as were the other pits, of which the whole constituted the mines of Aberfoyle. It was a sad day when for the last time the workmen quitted the mine in which they had lived for so many years. The engineer, James Starr, had collected the hundreds of workmen which composed the active and courageous population of the mine. Overmen, brakemen, putters, wastemen, barrelmen, masons, smiths, carpenters, outside and inside laborers, women, children, and old men all were collected in the great yard of the Dotchert Pit, formerly heaped with coal from the mine. Many of those families had existed for generations in the mine of old Aberfoyle. They were now driven to seek the means of sustenance elsewhere, and they waited sadly to bid farewell to the engineer. James Starr stood upright at the door of the vast shed in which he had for so many years superintended the powerful machines of the shaft. Simon Ford, the foreman of the Dotchert Pit, then fifty-five years of age, and other managers and overseers surrounded him. James Starr took off his hat 
the miners, cap in hand, kept a profound silence. This feral scene was of a touching character, not wanting in grandeur. My friends, said the engineer, the time has come for us to separate. The Aberfoyle mines, which for so many years have united us in a common work, are now exhausted. All our resources have not led to the discovery of a new vein, and the last block of coal has just been extracted from the Dotchard pit. And in confirmation of his words, James Starr pointed to a lump of coal which had been kept at the bottom of the basket. This piece of coal, my friends, resumed James Starr, is like the last drop of blood which has flowed through the veins of the mine. We shall keep it as the first fragment of coal is kept, which was extracted 150 years ago from the bearings of Aberfoyle. Between these two pieces, how many generations of workmen have succeeded each other in our pits? Now it is over. The last words which your engineer will address to you are a farewell. You have lived in this mine, which your hands have emptied. The work has been hard, but not without profit for you. Our great family must disperse, and it is not probable that the future will ever again unite the scattered members. But do not forget that we have lived together for a long time, and that it will be the duty of the miners of Aberfoyle to help each other. Your old masters will not forget you either. When men have worked together, they must never be stranger to each other again. We shall keep our eye on you, and wherever you go, our recommendations shall follow you. Farewell then, my friends, and may heaven go with you. So saying, James Starr rung the horny band of the oldest miner, whose eyes were dim with tears. Then the overmen of the different pits came forward to shake hands with him, whilst the miners waved their caps, shouting, Farewell, James Starr, our master and our friend. This farewell would leave a lasting remembrance in all these honest hearts. Slowly and sadly, the population quitted the yard. The last black soil of the roads leading to the Dochert pit resounded for the last time to the tread of miners' feet, and silence succeeded to the bustling life which had till then filled the Aberfoyle mines. One man alone remained by James Starr. This was the overman, Simon Ford. Near him stood a boy, about fifteen years of age, who for some years already had been employed down below. James Starr and Simon Ford knew and esteemed each other well. Goodbye, Simon, said the engineer. Goodbye, Mr. Starr, replied the overman. Let me add, till we meet again. Yes, till we meet again, Ford, answered James Starr. You know that I shall always be glad to see you and talk over old times. I know that, Mr. Starr. My house is in Edinburgh, always open to you. It's a long way off, is Edinburgh, answered the man, shaking his head. I a long way from the Dochert pit. A long way, Simon? Where do you mean to live? Even here, Mr. Starr. We're not going to leave the mine, our good old nurse, just because her milk has dried up. My wife, my boy, and myself, we mean to remain faithful to her. Goodbye, then, Simon, replied the engineer, whose voice, in spite of himself, betrayed some emotion. No, I tell you, it's till we meet again, Mr. Starr, and not just goodbye, returned the foreman. Mark my words, Aberfoyle will see you again. The engineer did not try to dispel the man's illusion. He patted Harry's head, again wrung the father's hand, and left the mine. All this had taken place ten years ago, but, notwithstanding the wish which the foreman had expressed to see him again, during that time, Starr had heard nothing of him. It was after ten years of separation that he got this letter from Simon Ford, requesting him to take, without delay, the road to the old Aberfoyle colliery. A communication of an interesting nature, what could it be? Dotchert Pit, Yarrow Shaft. What recollections of the past these names brought back to him? Yes, that was a fine time, that of work, of struggle, the best part of the engineer's life. Starr reread his letter. 
He pondered over it in all its bearings. He much regretted that just a line more had not been added by Ford. He wished he had not been so laconic. Was it possible the old foreman had discovered some new vein? No, Stahl remembered with what minute care the mines had been explored before the definite cessation of the works. He had himself proceeded to the lowest soundings without finding the least trace in the soil, burrowed in every direction. They had even attempted to find coal under strata, which are usually below it, such as the Devonian red sandstone, but without result. James Starr had therefore abandoned the mine with the absolute conviction that it did not contain another bit of coal. No, he repeated, no, how is it possible that anything which could have escaped my researches should be revealed to those of Simon Ford? However, the old overman must well know that such a discovery would be the one thing in the world to interest me, and this invitation, which I must keep secret, to repair to the Dochert pit, James Starr always came back to that. On the other hand, the engineer knew Ford to be a clever miner, peculiarly endowed with the instinct of his trade. He had not seen him since the time when the Aberfoyle colliery was abandoned, and did not know either what he was doing or where he was living, with his wife and his son. All that he now knew was that a rendezvous had been appointed him at the Yarrow Shaft, and that Harry, Simon Ford's son, was to wait for him during the whole of the next day at the calendar station. "'I shall go, I shall go,' said Starr, his excitement increasing as the time drew near." Our worthy engineer belonged to that class of men whose brain is always on the boil, like a kettle on a hot fire. In some of these brain kettles, the ideas bubble over. In some, they just simmer quietly. Now on this day, James Starr's ideas were boiling fast. But suddenly, an unexpected incident occurred. There was the drop of cold water, which, in a moment, was to condense all the vapors of the brain. About six in the evening, by the third post, Starr's servant brought him a second letter. This letter was enclosed in a coarse envelope and evidently directed by a hand unaccustomed to the use of a pen. James Starr tore it open. It contained only a scrap of paper, yellowed by time and apparently torn out of an old copybook. On this paper was written a single sentence, thus worded. It is useless for the engineer James Starr to trouble himself, Simon Ford's letter being now without object. No signature. End of chapter one. Recording by Dylan Stiles. The Underground City by Jules Verne. Chapter two. The course of James Starr's ideas was abruptly stopped when he got to this second letter contradicting the first. What does this mean? he said to himself. He took up the torn envelope and examined it. Like the other, it bore the Aberfoyle postmark. It had therefore come from the same part of the country of Stirling. The old miner had evidently not written it. But, no less evidently, the author of this second letter knew the overman's secret, since it expressly contradicted the invitation to the engineer to go to the Yarrow shaft. Was it really true that the first communication was now without object? Did someone wish to prevent James Starr from troubling himself, either uselessly or otherwise? Might there not be a malevolent intention to thwart Forge's plans? This was the conclusion at which James Starr arrived, after mature reflection. The contradiction which existed between the two letters only wrought in him 
a more keen desire to visit the Dockhart pit. And besides, if after all it was a hoax, it was well worth while to prove it. Starr also thought it wiser to give more credence to the first letter than to the second, that is to say, to the request of such a man as Simon Ford, rather than to the warning of his anonymous contradictor. Indeed, said he, the point of anyone endeavoring to influence my resolution shows that Ford's communication must be of great importance. Tomorrow, at the appointed time, I shall be at the rendezvous. In the evening, Starr made his preparations for departure. As it might happen that this absence would be prolonged for some days, he wrote to Sir W. L. Fiston, president of the Royal Institution, that he should be unable to be present at the next meeting of the society. He also wrote to excuse himself from two or three engagements, which he had made for the week. Then, having ordered his servant to pack a traveling bag, he went to bed, more excited than the affair perhaps warranted. The next day, at five o'clock, James Starr jumped out of bed, dressed himself warmly, for a cold rain was falling, and left his house in Canongate to go to Granton Pier to catch the steamer, which in three hours would take him up the fourth as far as Stirling. For the first time in his life, perhaps, in passing along the Canongate, he did not turn around to look at Holyrood, the palace of the former sovereigns of Scotland. He did not notice the sentinels who stood before its gateways, dressed in the uniform of their Highland regiment, tartan kilt, plaid, and sporon complete. His whole thought was to reach Calendar, where Harry Ford was supposedly awaiting him. The better to understand this narrative, it will be as well to hear a few words on the origin of coal. During the geological epoch, when the terrestrial spheroid was still in the course of formation, an atmosphere surrounded it, saturated with watery vapors and copiously impregnated with carbonic acid. The vapors gradually condensed in diluvial rains, which fell as if it had left from the necks of thousands of millions of seltzer water bottles. This liquid, loaded with carbonic acid, rushed in torrents over a deep soft soil, subject to sudden or slow alterations of form, and maintained in its semi-fluid state as much by the heat of the sun as by the fires of the interior mass. The internal heat had not as yet been collected in the center of the globe. The terrestrial crust, thin and incompletely hardened, allowed it to spread through its pores. This caused a peculiar form of vegetation, such as is probably produced on the surface of the inferior planets, Venus or Mercury, which revolve nearer than our Earth around the radiant sun of our system. The soil of the continents was covered with immense forests. Carbonic acid, so suitable for the development of the vegetable kingdom, abounded. The feet of these trees were drowned in a sort of immense lagoon, kept continually full by currents of fresh and salt waters. They eagerly assimilated to themselves the carbon which they, little by little, extracted from the atmosphere, as yet unfit for the function of life and it may be said that they were destined to store it in the form of coal in the very bowels of the earth. It was the earthquake period caused by internal convulsions which suddenly modified the unsettled features of the terrestrial surface. Here, an intumescence which was to become a mountain 
There, an abyss, which was to be filled with an ocean or a sea. There, whole forests sunk through the earth's crust. Below the unfixed strata, either until they found a resting place, such as the primitive bed of granitic rock, or settling together in a heap, they formed a solid mass. As the waters were contained in no bed, they were spread over every part of the globe. They rushed where they liked, tearing from the scarcely formed rocks the material with which to compose schists, sandstones, and limestones. This the roving waves bore over the submerged and now peaty forests, and deposited above them the elements of rocks, which were to superpose the coal strata. In the course of time, periods of which include millions of years, these earths hardened in layers and enclosed under a thick carapace of pudding stone, schist, compact or friable sandstone, gravel and stones, the whole of the massive forests. And what went on in this gigantic crucible, where all this vegetable matter had accumulated, sunk to various depths? A regular chemical operation, a sort of distillation. All the carbon contained in these vegetables had agglomerated, and little by little coal was forming under the double influence of enormous pressure and the high temperature maintained by the internal fires at this time so close to it. Thus there was one kingdom substituted for another in this slow but irresistible reaction. The vegetable was transformed into a mineral. Plants had lived the vegetative life and all the rigor of first creation became petrified. Some of the substances enclosed in this vast herbal left their impression on the other more rapidly mineralized products which pressed them as a hydraulic press of incalculable power would have done. Thus also shells, zoophytes, starfish, palpi, spirifores, even fish and lizards brought by the water, left on the yet soft coal their extract lightness, admirably taken off. Pressure seems to have played a considerable part in the formation of carboniferous strata. In fact, it is to its degree of power that are due the different sorts of coal, which industry makes use of. Thus, in the lowest layers of the coal ground appears the anthracite, which, being almost destitute of volatile matter, contains the greatest quantity of carbon. In the higher beds are found, on the contrary, lignite and fossil wood substances in which the quantity of carbon is infinitely less. Between these two beds, according to the degree of pressure to which they have been subjected, are found veins of graphite and rich or poor coal. It may be asserted that it is for want of sufficient pressure that the beds of peaty bog have not been completely changed into coal. So then, the origin of coal mines in whatever part of the globe they have been discovered is this. The absorption of the terrestrial crust of the great forest of the geological period, the mineralization of the vegetables obtained in the course of time under the influence of pressure and heat, and under the action of carbonic acid. Now, at the time when the events related in this story took place, some of the most important mines of the Scottish coal beds had been exhausted by too rapid working. In the region which extends between Edinburgh and Glasgow, for a distance of 10 or 12 miles, 
like Aberfoyle Colliery, of which the engineer, James Starr, had so long directed the works. For ten years these mines had been abandoned. No seams had been discovered, although the soundings had been carried to a depth of 1,500 or even of 2,000 feet. And when James Starr had retired, it was with the full conviction that even the smallest vein had been completely exhausted. Under these circumstances, it was plain that the discovery of a new seam of coal would be an important event. Could Simon Ford's communication relate to a fact of this nature? This question James Starr could not cease asking himself. Was he called to make conquest of another corner of these rich treasure fields? Fain would he hope it was so. The second letter had for an instant checked his speculations on this subject, but now he thought of that letter no longer. Besides, the son of the old overman was there, waiting at the appointed rendezvous. The anonymous letter was therefore worth nothing. The moment the engineer set foot on the platform at the end of his journey, the young man advanced towards him. "'Are you Harry Ford?' asked the engineer quickly. "'Yes, Mr. Starr. "'I should have known you, my lad. "'Of course, in ten years you have become a man.' "'I knew you directly, sir,' replied the young miner, cap in hand. "'You have not changed. "'You look just as you did when you bade us goodbye in the Dockhart pit. "'I haven't forgotten that day.' "'Put on your cap, Harry,' said the engineer. "'It's pouring, and politeness needn't make you catch cold.' "'Shall we take shelter anywhere, Mr. Starr?' asked the young Ford. "'No, Harry. The weather is settled. It will rain all day, and I am in a hurry. Let us go on.' "'I am at your orders,' replied Harry. "'Tell me, Harry, is your father well?' "'Very well, Mr. Starr. And your mother?' "'She is well, too.' Was it your father who wrote me telling me to come to the Yarrow Shaft? No, it was I. Then did Simon Ford send me a second letter to contradict the first? Asked the engineer quickly. No, Mr. Starr, answered the young miner. Very well, said Starr, without speaking of the anonymous letter. Then continuing, and can you tell me what your father wants with me? Mr. Starr, my father wishes to tell you himself. But do you know what it is? I do, sir. Well, Harry, I will not ask you more. But let us get on, for I'm anxious to see Simon Ford. By the by, where does he live? In the mine. What? In the Dockhart pit? Yes, Mr. Starr, replied Harry. Really? Has your family never left the old mine since the cessation of the works? Not today, Mr. Starr. You know my father. It is there he was born, it is there that he means to die. I can understand that, Harry. I can understand that. His native mine, he did not like to abandon it. And are you happy there? Yes, Mr. Starr, replied the young miner, for we love one another, and we have but few wants. Well, Harry, said the engineer, lead the way. And walking rapidly through the streets of Calendar, in a few minutes they had left the town behind them. End of chapter 2. Recording by Dylan Stiles. The Underground City by Jules Verne. Chapter 3 The Dockert Pit. Harry Ford was a fine, strapping fellow of five and twenty. 
His grave looks, his habitually passive expression, had from childhood been noticed among his comrades in the mine. His regular features, his deep blue eyes, his curly hair, rather chestnut than fair, the natural grace of his person, altogether made him a fine specimen of a lowlander. Accustomed from his early days to the work of the mine, he was strong and hardy, as well as brave and good. Guided by his father, and impelled by his own inclinations, he had early begun his education, and at an age when most lads are little more than apprentices, he had managed to make himself of some importance, a leader, in fact, among his fellows, and few are very ignorant in a country which does all it can to remove ignorance. Though, during the first years of his youth, the pick was never out of Harry's hand, nevertheless the young miner was not long in acquiring sufficient knowledge to raise him into the upper class of the miners, and he would certainly have succeeded his father as overman of the Dockert pit if the colliery had not been abandoned. James Starr was still a good walker, yet he could not easily have kept up with his guide if the latter had not slackened his pace. The young man carrying the engineer's bag followed the left bank of the river for about a mile. Leaving its winding course, they took a road under tall, dripping trees. Wide fields lay on either side, around isolated farms. In one field a herd of hornless cows were quietly grazing, in another sheep with silky wool, like those in a child's toy sheepfold. The yarrow shaft was situated four miles from Callender. Whilst walking, James Starr could not but be struck with the change in the country. He had not seen it since the day when the last ton of Aberfoyle coal had been emptied into railway trucks to be sent to Glasgow. Agricultural life had now taken the place of the more stirring, active, industrial life. The contrast was all the greater because, during winter, field work is at a standstill. But formerly, at whatever season, the mining population, above and below ground, filled the scene with animation. Great wagons of coal used to be passing night and day. The rails, with their rotten sleepers, now disused, were then constantly ground by the weight of wagons. Now stony roads took the place of the old mining tramways. James Starr felt as if he was traversing a desert. The engineer gazed about him with a saddened eye. He stopped now and then to take breath. He listened. The air was no longer filled with distant whistlings and the panting of engines. None of those black vapors which the manufacturer loves to see hung on the horizon, mingling with the clouds. No tall cylindrical or prismatic chimney vomited out smoke after being fed from the mine itself. No blast pipe was puffing out its white vapor. The ground, formerly black with coal dust, had a bright look to which James Starr's eyes were not accustomed. When the engineer stood still, Harry Ford stopped also. The young miner waited in silence. He felt what was passing in his companion's mind, and he shared his feelings, he a child of the mine, whose whole life had been passed in its depths. "'Yes, Harry, it is all changed,' said Starr. "'But at the rate we worked, of course the treasures of coal would have been exhausted some day. Do you regret that time?' "'I do regret it, Mr. Starr,' answered Harry. The work was hard, but it was interesting, as are all struggles. No doubt, my lad, a continuous struggle against the dangers of landslips, fires, inundations, explosions of fire damp like claps of thunder. One had to guard against all those perils. You say, well, it was a struggle, and consequently an exciting life. The miners of Alva have been more favored than the miners of Aberfoyle, Mr. Starr. Aye, Harry, so they have, replied the engineer. Indeed, cried the young man, it's a pity that all the globe was not made of coal. Then there would have been enough to last millions of years. No doubt there would, Harry. It must be acknowledged, however, that nature has shown more forethought by forming our sphere principally of sandstone, limestone, and granite, which fire cannot consume. 
Do you mean to say, Mr. Starr, that mankind would have ended by burning their own globe? Yes, the whole lot of it, my lad, answered the engineer. The earth would have passed to the last bit into the furnaces of engines, machines, steamers, gas factories. Certainly that would have been the end of our world one fine day. There is no fear of that now, Mr. Starr. But yet the mines will be exhausted, no doubt, and more rapidly than the statistics make out. That will happen, Harry, and in my opinion England is very wrong in exchanging her fuel for the gold of other nations. I know well, added the engineer, that neither hydraulics nor electricity has yet shown all they can do, and that some day these two forces will be more completely utilized. But no matter, coal is of a very practical use, and lends itself easily to the various wants of industry. Unfortunately, man cannot produce it at will. Though our external forests grow incessantly under the influence of heat and water, our subterranean forests will not be reproduced, and if they were, the globe would never be in the state necessary to make them into coal. James Starr and his guide, whilst talking, had continued their walk at a rapid pace. An hour after leaving Calendar they reached the Dochert pit. The most indifferent person would have been touched at the appearance this deserted spot presented. It was like the skeleton of something that had formerly lived. A few wretched trees bordered a plain where the ground was hidden under the black dust of the mineral fuel, but no cinders nor even fragments of coal were to be seen. All had been carried away and consumed long ago. They walked into the shed which covered the opening of the yarrow shaft, whence ladders still gave access to the lower galleries of the pit. The engineer bent over the opening. Formerly from this place could be heard the powerful whistle of the air inhaled by the ventilators. It was now a silent abyss. It was like being at the mouth of some extinct volcano. When the mine was being worked, ingenious machines were used in certain shafts of the Aberfoyle colliery, which in this respect was very well off. Frames furnished with automatic lifts working in wooden slides, oscillating ladders called man-engines, which by a simple movement permitted the miners to descend without danger. But all these appliances had been carried away after the cessation of the works. In the yarrow shaft there remained only a long succession of ladders, separated at every fifty feet by narrow landings. Thirty of these ladders placed thus end to end led the visitor down into the lower gallery, a depth of fifteen hundred feet. This was the only way of communication which existed between the bottom of the Dochert pit and the open air. As to air, that came in by the Yarrow shaft, from whence galleries communicated with another shaft whose orifice opened at a higher level. The warm air naturally escaped by this species of inverted siphon. I will follow you, my lad, signing to the young man to precede him. As you please, Mr. Starr. Have you your lamp? Yes, and I only wish it was still the safety lamp, which we formerly had to use. Sure enough, returned James Starr, there is no fear of fire-damp explosions now. Harry was provided with a simple oil lamp, the wick of which he lighted. In the mine, now empty of coal, escapes of light carburetted hydrogen could not occur. As no explosion need be feared, there was no necessity for interposing between the flame and the surrounding air, that metallic screen which prevents the gas from catching fire. The Davy lamp was of no use here. But if the danger did not exist, it was because the cause of it had disappeared, and with this cause the combustible in which formerly consisted the riches of the Dochert pit. Harry descended the first steps of the upper ladder. Star followed. They soon found themselves in a profound obscurity, which was only relieved by the glimmer of the lamp. The young man held it above his head, the better to light his companion. A dozen ladders were descended by the engineer and his guide, with the measured step habitual to the miner. They were all still in good condition. 
James Starr examined, as well as the insufficient light would permit, the sides of the dark shaft, which were covered by a partly rotten lining of wood. Arrived at the fifteenth landing, that is to say, halfway down, they halted for a few minutes. "'Decidedly, I have not your legs, my lad,' said the engineer, panting. "'You are very stout, Mr. Starr,' replied Harry, "'and it's something, too, you see, to live all one's life in the mine.' "'Right, Harry. Formerly, when I was twenty, I could have gone down all at a breath. Come forward.' But just as the two were about to leave the platform, a voice, as yet far distant, was heard in the depths of the shaft. It came up like a sonorous billow, swelling as it advanced, and becoming more and more distinct. "'Hallo! Who comes here?' asked the engineer, stopping Harry. "'I cannot say,' answered the young miner. "'It's not your father?' "'My father, Mr. Starr? No.' "'Some neighbor, then?' "'We have no neighbors in the bottom of the pit,' replied Harry. "'We are alone, quite alone.' "'Well, we must let this intruder pass,' said James Starr. "'Those who are descending must yield the path to those who are ascending.' They waited. The voice broke out again with a magnificent burst, as if it had been carried through a vast speaking trumpet, and soon a few words of a Scotch song came clearly to the ears of the young miner. "'The hundred pipers!' cried Harry. "'Well, I shall be much surprised if that comes from the lungs of any man but Jack Ryan.' "'And who is this Jack Ryan?' asked James Starr. An old mining comrade, replied Harry. Then, leaning from the platform, Hello, Jack, he shouted. Is that you, Harry? was the reply. Wait a bit, I'm coming. And the song broke forth again. In a few minutes, a tall fellow of five and twenty, with a merry face, smiling eyes, a laughing mouth, and sandy hair, appeared at the bottom of the luminous cone which was thrown from his lantern, and set foot on the landing of the fifteenth ladder. His first act was to vigorously wring the hand which Harry extended to him. "'Delighted to meet you,' he exclaimed. "'If I had only known you were to be above ground today, "'I would have spared myself going down the arrow shaft.' "'This is Mr. James Starr,' said Harry, "'turning his lamp towards the engineer, who was in the shadow. "'Mr. Starr!' cried Jack Ryan. "'Ah, sir, I could not see. "'Since I left the mine, my eyes have not been accustomed "'to see in the dark, as they used to do. "'Ah, I remember a laddie who was always singing. "'That was ten years ago. It was you, no doubt.' "'Aye, Mr. Starr, but in changing my trade I haven't changed my disposition. "'It's far better to laugh and sing than to cry and whine. "'You're right there, Jack Ryan. "'And what do you do now as you have left the mine? "'I am working on the Melrose Farm, forty miles from here. "'Ah, it's not like our Aberfoyle mines. "'The pick comes better to my hand than the spade or hoe. "'And then in the old pit there were vaulted roofs to merrily echo one's songs, "'while up above ground. "'But you were going to see old Simon, Mr. Starr?' "'Yes, Jack,' answered the engineer. "'Don't let me keep you, then.' "'Tell me, Jack,' said Harry, "'what was taking you to our cottage today?' "'I wanted to see you, man,' replied Jack, "'and ask you to come to the Irvine Games. "'You know I am the piper of the place. "'There will be dancing and singing.' "'Thank you, Jack, but it's impossible.' "'Impossible?' "'Yes, Mr. Starr's visit will last some time, "'and I must take him back to Calendar. "'Well, Harry, it won't be for a week yet.' By that time Mr. Starr's visit will be over, I should think, and there will be nothing to keep you at the cottage. Indeed, Harry, said James Starr, you must profit by your friend Jack's invitation. Well, I accept it, Jack, said Harry. In a week, that's settled, returned Ryan. Goodbye, Harry, your servant, Mr. Starr. I am very glad to have seen you again. I can give news of you to all my friends. No one has forgotten you, sir. And I have forgotten no one, said Starr. Thanks for all, sir, replied Jack. "'Good-bye, Jack,' said Harry, shaking his hand. And Jack Ryan, singing as he went, soon disappeared in the heights of the shaft, dimly lighted by his lamp. 
A quarter of an hour afterwards, James Starr and Harry descended the last ladder and set foot on the lowest floor of the pit. From the bottom of the yarrow shaft radiated numerous empty galleries. They ran through the wall of schist and sandstone, some shored up with great roughly hewn beams, others lined with a thick casing of wood. In every direction, embankments supplied the place of the excavated veins. Artificial pillars were made of stone from neighboring quarries, and now they supported the ground, that is to say, the double layer of tertiary and quaternary soil which formerly rested on the seam itself. Darkness now filled the galleries, formerly lighted either by the miner's lamp or by the electric light, the use of which had been introduced in the mines. "'Will you not rest a while, Mr. Starr?' asked the young man. "'No, my lad,' replied the engineer, "'for I am anxious to be at your father's cottage.' "'Follow me, then, Mr. Starr. I will guide you, and yet I dare say you could find your way perfectly through this dark labyrinth.' "'Yes, indeed. I have the whole plan of the old pit still in my head.' Harry, followed by the engineer, and holding his lamp high the better to light their way, walked along a high gallery like the nave of a cathedral. Their feet still struck against the wooden sleepers which used to support the rails. They had not gone more than fifty paces when a huge stone fell at the feet of James Starr. "'Take care, Mr. Starr!' cried Harry, seizing the engineer by the arm. "'A stone, Harry! Ah, these old vaultings are no longer quite secure, of course, and—' "'Mr. Starr,' said Harry Ford, "'it seems to me that stone was thrown, thrown as by the hand of man.' "'Thrown!' exclaimed James Starr. "'What do you mean, lad?' "'Nothing, nothing, Mr. Starr,' replied Harry evasively, his anxious gaze endeavouring to pierce the darkness. "'Let us go on. Take my arm, sir, and don't be afraid of making a false step.' "'Here I am, Harry.' And they both advanced, whilst Harry looked on every side, throwing the light of his lamp into all the corners of the gallery. "'Shall we soon be there?' asked the engineer. "'In ten minutes at most. Good.' "'But,' muttered Harry, "'that was a most singular thing. It is the first time such an accident has happened to me. That stone falling just at the moment we were passing? Harry, it was a mere chance.' "'Chance,' replied the young man, shaking his head. "'Yes, chance.' He stopped and listened. "'What is the matter, Harry?' asked the engineer. "'I thought I heard someone walking behind us,' replied the young miner, listening more attentively. Then he added, "'No, I must have been mistaken. Lean harder on my arm, Mr. Starr. Use me like a staff.' "'A good solid staff, Harry,' answered James Starr. "'I could not wish for a better than a fine fellow like you.' They continued in silence along the dark nave. Harry was evidently preoccupied and frequently turned, trying to catch either some distant noise or remote glimmer of light. But behind and before, all was silence and darkness. End of chapter 3 Recording by Sean Michael Hogan, St. John's, Newfoundland Recording by Bologna Times The Underground City by Jules Verne Chapter 4 Ten minutes afterwards, James Starr and Harry issued from the principal gallery, they were now standing in a glade, if we may use this word to designate a vast and dark excavation. The place, however, was not entirely deprived of daylight. A few rays straggled in through the opening of a deserted shaft. It was by means of this pipe that ventilation was established in the Dockart pit. Owing to its lesser density, the warm air was drawn towards the Yarrow shaft, both air and light, therefore, penetrated in some measure into the glade. Here Simon Ford had lived with his family ten years, in a subterranean dwelling, hollowed out in the schistous mass, where formerly stood the powerful engines which worked the mechanical traction of the Dockart pit. 
Such was the habitation, his cottage, as he called it, in which resided the old overman. As he had some means saved during a long life of toil, Ford could have afforded to live in the light of day, among trees, or in any town of the kingdom he chose. But he and his wife and son preferred remaining in the mine, where they were happy together, having the same opinions, ideas, and tastes. Yes, they were quite fond of their cottage, buried fifteen hundred feet below Scottish soil. Among other advantages, there was no fear that tax-gatherers or rent-collectors would ever come to trouble its inhabitants. At this period, Simon Ford, the former overman of the Dochart pit, bore the weight of sixty-five years well. Tall, robust, well-built, he would have been regarded as one of the most conspicuous men in the district, which supplies so many fine fellows to the Highland regiments. Simon Ford was descended from an old mining family, and his ancestors had worked the very first carboniferous seams opened in Scotland. Without discussing whether or not the Greeks and Romans made use of coal, whether the Chinese worked coal mines before the Christian era, whether the French word for coal, we, is really derived from the farrier Wheelus, who lived in Belgium in the twelfth century, we may affirm that the beds in Great Britain were the first ever regularly worked. So early as the eleventh century, William the Conqueror divided the produce of the Newcastle bed among his companions in arms. At the end of the thirteenth century, a license for the mining of sea coal was granted by Henry the Third. Lastly, towards the end of the same century, mention is made of the Scotch and Welsh beds. It was about this time that Simon Ford's ancestors penetrated into the bowels of Caledonian earth, and lived there ever after, from father to son. They were but plain miners. They labored like convicts at the work of extracting the precious combustible. It is believed that the coal miners, like the salt makers of that period, were actual slaves. However that might have been, Simon Ford was proud of belonging to this ancient family of Scotch miners. He had worked diligently in the same place where his ancestors had wielded the pick, the crowbar, and the mattock. At thirty, he was overman of the Dochart pit, the most important of the Aberfoyle colliery. He was devoted to his trade. During long years, he zealously performed his duty. His only grief had been to perceive the bed becoming impoverished, and to see the hour approaching when the seam would be exhausted. It was then he devoted himself to the search for new veins in all the Aberfoyle pits, which communicated underground one with another. He had had the good luck to discover several during the last period of the working. His miner's instinct assisted him marvelously, and the engineer, James Starr, appreciated him highly. It might be said that he divined the course of seams in the depths of the coal mine, as a hydroscope reveals springs in the bowels of the earth. He was par excellence, the type of a miner whose whole existence is indissolubly connected with that of his mine. He had lived there from his birth, and now that the works were abandoned, he wished to live there still. His son Harry foraged for the subterranean housekeeping. As for himself, during those ten years, he had not been ten times above ground. "'Go up there! What is the good?' he would say, and refused to leave his black domain. The place was remarkably healthy, subject to an equable temperature. 
The old overman endured neither the heat of summer nor the cold of winter. His family enjoyed good health. What more could he desire? But at heart he felt depressed. He missed the former animation, movement, and life in the well-worked pit. He was, however, supported by one fixed idea. No, no, the mine is not exhausted, he repeated. And that man would have given serious offense, who could have ventured to express before Simon Ford any doubt that old Aberfoyle would one day revive. He had never given up the hope of discovering some new bed which would restore the mine to its past splendor. Yes, he would willingly, had it been necessary, have resumed the miner's pick, and with his still stout arms vigorously attacked the rock. He went through the dark galleries, sometimes alone, sometimes with his son, examining, searching for signs of coal, only to return each day, wearied, but not in despair, to the cottage. Madge, Simon's faithful companion, his good wife, to use the Scotch term, was a tall, strong, comely woman. Madge had no wish to leave the Dochart pit any more than had her husband. She shared all his hopes and regrets. She encouraged him, she urged him on, and talked to him in a way which cheered the heart of the old overman. Aberfoyle is only asleep, she would say. You are right about that, Simon. This is but a rest. It is not death. Madge, as well as the others, was perfectly satisfied to live independent of the outer world, and was the center of the happiness enjoyed by the little family in their dark cottage. The engineer was eagerly expected. Simon Ford was standing at his door, and as soon as Harry's lamp announced the arrival of his former viewer, he advanced to meet him. "'Welcome, Mr. Starr!' he exclaimed, his voice echoing under the roof of schist. "'Welcome to the old overman's cottage. Though it is buried fifteen hundred feet under the earth, our house is not the less hospitable.' "'And how are you, good Simon?' asked James Starr, grasping the hand which his host held out to him. "'Very well, Mr. Starr. How could I be otherwise here, sheltered from the inclemencies of the weather? Your ladies who go to Newhaven or Portobello in the summer-time would do much better to pass a few months in the coal-mine of Aberfoyle. They would run no risk here of catching a heavy cold, as they do in the damp streets of the old capital.' "'I'm not the man to contradict you, Simon,' answered James Starr, glad to find the old man just as he used to be. Indeed, I wonder why I do not change my home in the Canongate for a cottage near you. And why not, Mr. Starr? I know one of your old miners who would be truly pleased to have only a partition wall between you and him. And how is Madge? asked the engineer. The good wife is in better health than I am, if that's possible, replied Ford. And it will be a pleasure to her to see you at her table. I think she will surpass herself to do you honor. "'We shall see that, Simon. We shall see that,' said the engineer, to whom the announcement of a good breakfast could not be indifferent, after his long walk. "'Are you hungry, Mr. Starr?' "'Ravenously hungry. My journey has given me an appetite. I came through horrible weather.' "'Ah, it is raining up there,' responded Simon Ford. "'Yes, Simon, and the waters of the Forth are as rough as the sea.' "'Well, Mr. Starr, here it never rains, but I needn't describe to you all the advantages, which you know as well as myself. Here we are at the cottage. That is the chief thing, and I again say you are welcome, sir.' Simon Ford, followed by Harry, 
ushered their guest into the dwelling. James Starr found himself in a large room lighted by numerous lamps, one hanging from the colored beams of the roof. "'The soup is ready, wife,' said Ford, "'and it mustn't be kept waiting any more than Mr. Starr. He is as hungry as a miner, and he shall see that our boy doesn't let us want for anything in the cottage. By the by, Harry,' added the old overman, turning to his son, "'Jack Ryan came here to see you.' "'I know, father. We met him in the Yarrow Shaft.' He's an honest and a merry fellow, said Ford, but he seems to be quite happy above ground. He hasn't the true miner's blood in his veins. Sit down, Mr. Starr, and have a good dinner, for we may not sup till late. As the engineer and his hosts were taking their places, One moment, Simon, said James Starr. Do you want me to eat with a good appetite? It will be doing us all possible honor, Mr. Starr, answered Ford. "'Well, in order to eat heartily, I must not be at all anxious. "'Now I have two questions to put to you.' "'Go on, sir.' "'Your letter told me of a communication which was to be of an interesting nature. "'It is very interesting, indeed.' "'To you?' "'To you and to me, Mr. Starr. "'But I do not want to tell you until after dinner, and on the very spot itself. "'Without that, you would not believe me.' "'Simon.' resumed the engineer. Look me straight in the face. An interesting communication? Yes, good. I will not ask more. He added as if he had read the reply in the old overman's eyes. And the second question. Do you know, Simon, who the person is who can have written this? Answered the engineer, handing him the anonymous letter. Ford took the letter and read it attentively. Then, giving it to his son, "'Do you know the writing?' he asked. "'No, father,' replied Harry. "'And had this letter the Aberfoyle postmark?' inquired Simon Ford. "'Yes, like yours,' replied James Starr. "'What do you think of that, Harry?' said his father, his brow darkening. "'I think, father,' returned Harry, "'that someone has had some interest in trying to prevent Mr. Starr from coming to the place where you invited him.' "'But who?' exclaimed the old miner. Who could have possibly guessed enough of my secret? And Simon fell into a reverie, from which he was aroused by his wife. Let us begin, Mr. Starr, she said. The soup is already getting cold. Don't think any more of that letter just now. On the old woman's invitation, each drew in his chair. James Starr opposite to Madge, to do him honor. The father and son opposite to each other. It was a good Scotch dinner. First they ate hotchpotch soup, with the meat swimming in capital broth. As old Simon said, his wife knew no rival in the art of preparing hotchpotch. It was the same with the cocky leaky, a cock stewed with leeks, which merited high praise. The whole was washed down with excellent ale, obtained from the best brewery in Edinburgh. But the principal dish consisted of a haggis, the national pudding, made of meat and barley meal. This remarkable dish, which inspired the poet Burns with one of his best odes, shared the fate of all the good things in this world. It passed away like a dream. Madge received the sincere compliments of her guest. The dinner ended with cheese and oat-cake, accompanied by a few small glasses of uskuba, capital whiskey, five and twenty years old, just Harry's age. The repast lasted a good hour. James Starr, 
and Simon Ford had not only eaten much, but talked much, too, chiefly of their past life in the old Aberfoyle mine. Harry had been rather silent. Twice he had left the table, and even the house. He evidently felt uneasy since the incident of the stone, and wished to examine the environs of the cottage. The anonymous letter had not contributed to reassure him. Whilst he was absent, the engineer observed to Ford and his wife, "'That's a fine lad you have there, my friends.' "'Yes, Mr. Starr, he is a good and affectionate son,' replied the old overman, earnestly. "'Is he happy with you in the cottage?' "'He would not wish to leave us.' "'Don't you think of finding him a wife some day?' "'A wife for Harry?' exclaimed Ford. "'And who would that be? A girl from up yonder, who would love merry-making and dancing, who would prefer her clan to our mine? Harry wouldn't do it.' "'Simon,' said Madge, you would not forbid that Harry should take a wife. I would forbid nothing, returned the old miner, but there's no hurry about that. Who knows but we may find one for him. Harry re-entered at that moment, and Simon Ford was silent. When Madge rose from the table, all followed her example, and seated themselves at the door of the cottage. Well, Simon, said the engineer, I am ready to hear you. "'Mr. Starr,' responded Ford, "'I do not need your ears, but your legs. "'Are you quite rested?' "'Quite rested, and quite refreshed, Simon. "'I am ready to go with you wherever you like.' "'Harry,' said Simon Ford, turning to his son, "'light our safety lamps.' "'Are you going to take safety lamps?' exclaimed James Starr, in amazement, "'knowing that there was no fear of explosions of fire-damp in a pit quite empty of coal.' "'Yes, Mr. Starr, it will be prudent.' "'My good Simon, won't you propose next to put me in a miner's dress?' "'Not just yet, sir, not just yet,' returned the old overman, his deep-set eyes gleaming strangely. Harry soon reappeared, carrying three safety lamps. He handed one of these to the engineer, the other to his father, and kept the third hanging from his left hand, whilst his right was armed with a long stick. "'Forward!' said Simon Ford, taking up a strong pick, which was leaning against the wall of the cottage. "'Forward!' echoed the engineer. "'Good-bye, Madge.' "'God speed you!' responded the good woman. "'A good supper, wife. Do you hear?' exclaimed Ford. "'We shall be hungry when we come back, and we'll do it justice.'" End of Chapter 4